I find that I want to frame or justify my conversation with my guest, Hannah Maxwell, on today's episode of the podcast. But anything I say will only further cheapen the full experience that you're about to listen to. I would like to give you the opportunity to move on to another podcast or a different episode if you are uncomfortable listening to a frank and honest discussion about drugs. A lot of this episode is diving into both my and my guests' use of psychedelics in search of personal betterment. I know there are going to be a lot of people who listen who think that's hooey, that psychedelics do not better a person, that drugs are drugs, and you should be clean and not use them. I have confessed many times on this podcast that uh, alcohol and other substances can be a challenge for me in uh, an addictive sense. Uh, in fact, that is what first led me to psychedelics was all of the research that suggested they are powerful in overcoming addictions and changing your mindset. You know how much I care about mindset. And so this episode looks at all of that, frankly. Uh, you may not enjoy the conversation and I invite you to skip by it. You don't even have to be a listener of the podcast if you find that you dislike uh, taking insight or opinions or thoughts from somebody who is open to and generally positive-minded about the use of drugs in a safe and productive context. I'm trying to choose my words carefully here. It's more uncomfortable than maybe it even should be for me to share these things. Partly because what if my family is listening or friends who don't know this side of me? Well, you got to live your life in a way that you're proud of. And if you can't share the things that you do with the public, maybe you have no business doing them. Um, so that all is a fairly long preamble to say that uh, this episode is something I'm proud of. But again, it's not a story episode. I have a couple in the bank now. I'm about to record one here in a couple of hours with uh, a gentleman named David. And I'm looking forward to doing his story and getting it out to you soon. But I also wanted to share with you that I have a couple of episodes coming out that, again, are not stories. It seems like the reluctant book marketer is just holding on to the mindset of the people who interact with me, as well as I can slip into those conversations fairly easily. So apologies if apologies are needed. Otherwise, I hope you just like the product that we're putting out a couple times a week. My sense is that there's value in it for a lot of different people. Okay, so here's here's one thing that's really important. This is critical. Uh, a few weeks ago, I put out a link for you to grab a free review copy of The Nine Lives of Marva DeLonghi. And so this is a moment to ask if you finished reading that book. I would love if you would drop by Amazon, Goodreads, leave your rating and review. Even if you think the book was a piece of trash and you wish you'd never wasted your life reading a single sentence in it, Go ahead and throw up that review. Say, please, readers, beware. This is a terrible book. I'm fairly confident you're not going to feel that way. But if you do, it's your right. It's your privilege. And it will help me to become a better writer if I'm that far off of understanding what is good writing and a compelling story. So if you have finished the book, 
rate and review it on Amazon, please. If you want to pick up a copy of the book, it's on Amazon. It's ridiculously expensive. That's by design. I have my own bookstore and it's about half price if you buy it off of my bookstore versus Amazon. If you need that Amazon stamp of approval, feel free to pay the $14 before tax to pick it up or run over to my bookstore at jodyjsperling.com to pick up that book, pre-order the other three. If you're really excited, I can even give you a $9 deal for all three books. And yeah, that's that's kind of it. I'll put a bunch of stuff in the show notes uh, that you can find out more about Hannah Maxwell, the mystical maven slash Fanny Adams ghost. Uh, if you want, all of her links will be in the, the show notes as well as links to my books, The Seven Figure Marketing Mindset for Novelists and The Nine Lives of Marva DeLonghi. This is a really long intro, longer than I've done in a long time. And uh, that's okay. Sometimes you have a lot that needs saying. So ratings, reviews, buy books, interact with the community, follow me on Twitter, do all of these things. If you feel like I've just sent you in 19 different directions, that probably reflects the chaos in my mind at the moment. A lot going on. Love the work that you're doing out there. I am so glad that we are connected through this podcast, through Twitter, wherever we found each other. Go out there and kick some butt and please enjoy my conversation with pen name, Hannah Maxwell. If you've ever watched an author read in public and felt bored, TRBM is the antidote. TRBM is for writers what time lapse was for painters. Guitar solos and spotlights were for bands. What chainsaws and ice blocks were for sculptors. What does TRBM stand for? Tripping on really big mushrooms? Totally righteous, basically maybe? Tornadoes rain? Big monsoons? You decide. How long have you been writing? Like 30 years. Awesome. Long time. Yeah, it's surprising how it kind of comes up on you. I, I started 20 years ago and I thought I would have a published book so, so much faster than it ended up happening. Um, it felt a little bit like defeat too. I self-published and part of me was always, I, I remember, in fact, when I was young and, and dumb, I would say um, anybody who self-publishes isn't good enough to to do it the real way. Uh, so, you know, life will. Yeah, I know some, some self-published authors that would probably say that that's not necessarily true. <laughs> I know for sure it's not true now. It just, it was a long journey to get to that place. And you know, when you believe something for long enough, even, even when your brain, uh, finally relents and lets you see that uh, you are wrong, you still have like lingering, I don't know, doubt maybe or something. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So yeah, I've had a lot of doubt when there's other things going on in my life that have nothing to do with my writing at all, but they're affecting my ability to write effectively Mm -hmm. or as much as I'd like. Absolutely. That's so familiar to me. Um, it's weird how everything is interconnected too, or, uh, like I'm designing a, a website for my, my detective series right now. And, um, I was on a phone call talking with a guy about selling the books and he was suggesting that I was doing something wrong. And it was weird. Like I felt so good about my website and I got off that phone call and then I looked at the website and I was like, it's crap. <laughs> <laughs> I've done that with every website I have. I've yeah. looked at all of them and I thought they were so tight. And then I look again later and it's like, Oh, uh, you need to fix that. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, it's awful. So this is, I think, um, it's, I think it's true of all people to a degree, but I think it's especially true of creatives that, um, on the one hand, we think we're geniuses. And on the other hand, nothing is ever good enough. Yeah. We want it to be perfect the first time. Yeah, I do. And I, I want it to, it, it never is perfect. I want it to be perfect the first time and it's never perfect, no matter how much I work on it. So oh, the worst is when um, you think it's perfect, but then you read it again and, and find every single thing wrong with it that is there yeah. even a lack of a period and every little thing yes. kind of is a pinprick in your confidence. Yes. Yep. The first, the first reader, you could have 50 readers read a book and say, this is amazing. It's great. I love it. Uh, and then the 51st is like, that's not for me. I didn't really like it. And you'll linger on that specific review instead mm-hmm. of the other 50. So do you have published work out there? I've co-authored a few things, but that was under a different pen name. That was long ago. I'm trying to branch out as Hannah Maxwell now and get work that way. (laughs) Okay. Is Hannah Maxwell a pen name? It is. Gotcha. All righty. And do you have like a a genre you like to work in? I know on, I know you on Twitter, but because you're, you use a, a, an avatar profile picture and everything, I've never, you know, found much out about you. So you're, uh, you could be whoever you want to be, honestly. That's kind (laughs) of how it works on Twitter. Exactly. So, uh, I like being a mystery. It's more fun that way. Yeah, absolutely. You can, you know, duck in and out of anything that you you want to be and you don't have to worry about uh, your your real self chaining you down. Or sometimes for me, it's being able to be my real self online oh, more wow. than I can in the real world, because mm-hmm. in the real world, you have to worry about hurting someone's feelings or mm. saying the wrong thing. Like there's a lot of things I'm just uninformed about and I might say the words the wrong way and offend someone when I didn't mm-hmm. even know I was being offensive because everyone's so sensitive these days. Yes. So it's hard to it's hard to function in the real world. I'm very much me on the internet. I might be using a different mm-hmm. name and what have you, but I'm very much me on the internet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. I was actually going to ask you about that at some point in the conversation, and it makes just as much sense now as as anywhere else. But I, I wonder in a situation like that, because one of the things that I know you for and one of the reasons I took notice of you uh, earlier on than some people is that you you have a level of sarcasm um, and you handle the sarcasm really well. Sometimes it's it's nicely placed and kind of dismissive um, and always humorous. And I've never felt insulted by you, which some people who are sarcastic take it too far. I've never really sensed that about you. So I, I think you have a really good grip of sarcasm. Do you think that that does have to do with the fact that you have a little bit of anonymity, even though you're being more yourself, do you think you're able to do that because of the anonymity? Yeah, definitely. Um, I think too, that I'm, I try to consider, like, I don't just, you know, press the buttons and then hit send. I, I reread mm-hmm. yeah. most everything, like sometimes up to three times before right. I hit send, even if it's mm-hmm. just a petty little tweet or whatever, little tweet, I'll always read it first, make sure the words are right. Make sure that it isn't something I wouldn't want to hear myself. I try to not be mean mm-hmm. to people. Mm-hmm. I just try to point out like, you know, you're, you're accusing me of saying this thing, but that isn't mm-hmm. what I said. Mm-hmm. Read the tweet again and see what I yeah. really said. And then get back to me. And more often than not, people that come at me, like rage filled people that come at me that are kind of being assumptive about what I meant. Mm -hmm. If they're willing to stick around for a couple minutes and just let me explain where I'm coming from more often than not, I end up being like Twitter friends with them 
this communication instead of confrontation, you know, is important to me. Yeah. And you seem willing to have that conversation even about maybe more tense topics. So for me, I feel like because I was really focused on growing my brand on Twitter, uh, I was really cautious about staying neutral as often as possible. Uh, and still people will accuse me of, of certain opinions. I'm like, I, I asked a question uh, early on. I remember I asked the question, do you consider uh, listening to audiobooks reading? Um, and I got called an ableist by like so, so many people. And, and I said, I asked a stupid question. And the funny thing is when I first asked the question, I did consider it reading. By the time I had read the arguments uh, from everybody, I flipped. I was like, no, I no longer consider audiobooks reading. I, I still consider it consuming a book, but it's a different activity and it is distinct. So it was weird to to change my mind based on a Twitter conversation. But uh, I've, I've done that many times when people have, you know, I don't have a problem changing my mind. I don't have a problem saying, guess what? I'm wrong. I don't right. have any problems with that at all. In fact, the sooner you do it, the better off you end up being. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if you wait too long to admit you're wrong, sometimes you just end up looking like a fool. Yeah. Especially when you know there there always is that moment where you where you realize, oops, I was wrong here. Now that I have more information or better information, I I can change my opinion, but I'm afraid to look stupid. Um and I, I definitely have held on too long before, uh, many times. <laughs> I don't mind looking stupid. <laughs> yeah. Oh. I've looked stupid plenty in my life. It's, you know, par for the course. If you're breathing air, you're going to look stupid every now and then. Yes. I envy that. I do still care. I can't, can't help it. My, my wife too is a lot that way. In fact, that was probably the source of the most conflict early on in our marriage was that she really hated looking stupid. And so uh, there was one time, uh, it was even before we got married, we were walking into a grocery store and I was talking about the Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe. And she looked at me and she's like, what's that? And I said, you haven't read the Chronicles of Narnia? Like I stopped right where the sliding doors were walking in and said, you've never read the Chronicles of Narnia? And she started to cry because I'd made her feel stupid. And I was like, oh, Wow, that's powerful. I didn't I didn't mean to do that, but yeah, to call people out, it's it's tough. That's intense. <laughs> They're good books. Did she ever read them? Uh, yeah, we so after I, I, I discovered she hadn't read them, we we read them aloud to each other uh before we got married. So we would we would get a you know six pack of beer and and in the evenings we would sit down and, and read the books out loud to each other. I really enjoyed it a lot. So nice. Yeah, yeah, I liked the horse and his boy. I think that was my mm-hmm. favorite one. Yes, I think I agree. I'm trying to think if the magician's nephew might be. It's either that or the horse and his boy. They're both really the magician's good books. nephew. I think in in England or in Europe, mm-hmm. I'm not sure. It is considered book number one. And the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is book number two. It. I don't think it matters if it's at the beginning or the end. It still kind of rounds things out nicely. It gives it a nice. Uh, circle that you can read them in, but the horse and his mm-hmm. boy kind of is a, almost a standalone. And I liked it because he could communicate directly with his horse. And that was just cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Did you ever read uh, the the space trilogy then by Lewis? I never did. I never even heard of it. See how so bad he, I am. <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> so he wrote uh, out of the silent planet, Paralandra and that hideous strength. Uh, and when I was a young man, my dad had me read them. And I thought that out of the silent planet was crazy boring. And I really liked the other two. Uh, and it's funny because I came back around and those were books that I read with Ash as well. And I loved Out of the Silent Planet the second time I read it. It's by far the best of the three. It's weird how time will change your opinion of things. Oh, yeah. Well, maturity too. 
Yes. Yeah, absolutely. There there are some themes, I think. I'm always impressed by kids' movies, for example, that they're able to handle um, certain themes where adults will get a laugh out of it and kids have no idea what the joke is. But it doesn't matter to them uh, because there's mm-hmm. other things that are doing the weightlifting for for a kid's brain. So Right, like visually stimulating things and yes. really interesting characters, maybe a little... Maybe a little slapdashery, you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, tell me a little bit about your your writing. What what um, what kind of things do you write? I kind of write everything. Um, mm-hmm. When I was co-authoring books, I wrote. Um, I helped out with a couple, sort of, uh, for lack of a better way to put it, psychedelic anthologies. Okay. Because I had experimented with a lot of entheogens as a mm-hmm. younger person mm-hmm. uh, to expand my mind and whatnot. Did it work? So, oh yeah, oh yeah, it worked. I think that um, one of the biggest problems that people have with using entheogens and expanding their mind with drugs, expanding their consciousness, is that they fall into this trap where they feel like they have to continue to take the drug. Where Mm -hmm. for me, and I know this to be a fact, maybe only for me, but I think you, you know, you do you blow open the doors of perception, you know, Mm -hmm. in your mind when you, when you take those, but Mm -hmm. you know, once you blow the doors off the hinges and there's nothing left but splinters, you really don't need to be taking those drugs anymore. You know what I'm saying? Like I can get to those places. I can meditate Mm. into very deep trance-like states because of, Mm. I've also been meditating since I was just a little kid. So Hmm. I got lucky, you know, I was in the right place at the right time. I met the right person who taught me about transcendental meditation when I was Mm -hmm. only six years old. Hmm. Wow. So I've learned to do a lot of things with my brain and the drugs certainly helped to help me find other little rooms in my head. But, you know, like I said, once you blast the doors off, you don't really need to keep on being drug addled all the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's a, um, a fascinating subject for me because uh, well, in fact, I think on two different occasions recently, I've hosted somebody on the podcast and been talking um, and mentioned kind of uh, just in passing, like I love I love drugs and I love talking about drugs. Um, they're two of my favorite things. I don't really travel there very much on Twitter because I do know that some people are uncomfortable with the conversation. Uh, I'm trying to think if it was it was not Leary. Who was it? The other really big his brother's still alive. McKenna said that, yeah, once you get the message, Terrence McKenna said, once you get the message, hang up um, or something along those lines, that's very similar to your kind of the splinters, the the doors blown off. Um, Yeah. Maybe I've just not gotten the message yet. That could be possible uh, because I I return to it with some frequency, um, but I've only ever used psilocybin so far. I've not tried anything else i haven't been able to i want to know it's really safe if i were to to try it but i do absolutely love the experience um yeah i've I've only had good experiences i had one terrifying experience but even that was a really positive outcome for me yeah i get that i've had very crazy experiences where i was torn to shreds by animals (laughs) oh geez but um you know it's all as part of that rebirth thing but i i mean Mm -hmm. i did it I mean, nowadays it's easier, I think, to feel safe because they have, they're they're legalizing it. So they're making products that they know will be safe. They're making gummies that are Mm -hmm. psilocybin, you know, like when I was doing it, (laughs) there wasn't any of that in place. Right. In uh, the 
early 90s, all throughout the 90s, really. Mm-hmm. I spent a good 10 years being mostly high. <laughs> uh, yeah. I would even munch on psilocybin. I would just, I would take some mushrooms and throw them into a bag of peanut M&Ms and eat them during class in college. Oh, geez. Wow. Okay. <laughs> like, you I guess I had a higher tolerance. tolerance. I was going to say you built up a tolerance from what I understand. I don't know if I've ever gotten there. Did, how did it, how did it change things for you then in a classroom setting? Were you, were you still experiencing something? Oh yeah. I could, okay. it could be like hyper-focused on the professor or oh, wow. I could, if I could still read, which sometimes the words would dance around on the page, but mm-hmm. when I, right before it's, they started dancing around, I usually got this really hyper-focused, uh, I could read really fast. I could just like hyper-focus on the book and I retained the majority of the information. So that was useful. Yeah, absolutely. But I didn't get a lot of the visuals at that time because of the fact that I had built up a tolerance to so many of the things I was taking. That's when I started trying like ayahuasca and mescaline and peyote and mm-hmm. things like that. And those were more, definitely more intense, especially the ayahuasca. I took it with a few other things. If you add roo seed to mm-hmm. um, ayahuasca, it kind of enhances it. It kind of oh. like you can, if, if you have a formula, you can less the amount of ayahuasca that you take. Um, really? If you add Siri and Rue to it. Interesting. Which is nice. Oh, wow. Yeah. I, I don't even know. I would have to, I feel like I would have to go abroad somewhere to get ayahuasca. Uh, mescaline is kind of a different, a different story. Um, which I'm I think if you want to get good ayahuasca, However, too, you got to be careful of the, you know, a lot of people want to have the experience and they go to Peru mm-hmm. and whatever, exactly. but there's Peruvians out there that are just as scammy as any American with their, with their stuff. So you just got to be really careful, make sure you're with the right people, take your wife, you know, she's, mm-hmm. no one's going to have your back like your wife. Exactly. Yeah. That's, it's been very, very nice. Every time uh, that that I've done any kind of, um, uh, a trip. I've always had her at least nearby. Uh, the last time I did it was interesting. Um, it's got to be four, three or four months ago. Uh, I had never had what they consider to be the um, spiritual experience. What's I mean, there's a there's a specific term they use for it, but anyways, I never had that exact experience. And I thought maybe I just really need to to get way up there or something. So I took eleven grams, um, <laughs> and. It was strange. I definitely, it was a enjoyable experience, but I thought like, I don't, I'm still not getting that, that experience that I was looking for, but I was wandering the house at one point. Um, and it's strange when you're in that place, uh, you can feel like you understand things very clearly, but then if you mm-hmm. try to verbalize them, it <laughs> is like gobbledygook. It's the weirdest thing. Well, um, there's was, also the part where you feel like something is very, let me give you an example. Yeah. So this one time, some friends of mine were d- dropping some LSD and we were at my house, which was kind of out in the country. And I had a dog and he would like to go outside from time to time. And we were all so high <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. and we were standing by the couch. We were kind of standing in a semicircle talking about something and the dog came up and kind of sat next to me and he looked up at me and then he sat next to someone else and looked up at them. And we were all just like, Oh yeah, cute dog, you know? And we didn't, we were so high. We didn't realize that he wanted to go outside. So when he like Uh, went over to the couch, he looked at us and he lifted his leg and just stared at us while he peed all over the couch. (laughs) I was like, my dog doesn't pee inside. He never does that. And I was like, yeah, the most basic thing, like my friend couldn't figure out why 
he would get cold and then hot and then cold and then hot. And I was like, because we're in an air conditioned house and you keep going outside to run around in the yard and it's very hot out because it was summer in Minnesota, you know? Yeah. So I was like, yeah, you have to, you you think the obvious things are really, really breakthroughs, but they aren't. And that's mm-hmm. part of the problem with the whole situation. I mean, mm-hmm. you don't look for some kind of spiritual experience. Don't expect some, ex- some experience. Right. Just, just go. Right. Just go and let, let the journey take you instead of you trying to take the journey. That's the, that's what you have to do with entheogens. You just have to let that, mm-hmm. you just have to let that lion walk right up to you and tear you to shreds, you know? Right. Yeah. Without, without exception, every single time that I've, I've had an experience, it's weeks afterward uh, that the, whatever, whatever I needed to get from that experience really settles in that I'll have the epiphany moment weeks afterwards. I never have the epiphany during, or even the day of, in fact, coming down from it is in my opinion, one of the worst things out there. It's horrible. You get it for me. I get a terrible headache. Um, I feel really depressed. The first time I honestly think if I had not told my wife, let's get in the car and drive, I think I would have started to struggle with like suicidal thought patterns because the really big takeaway that day was, uh, life is, is, uh, just the construct that I'm trying, I'm trying to like literally fool myself into thinking there's any point in existing. Um, <laughs> that was pretty, pretty drab for, for that. But it also was probably one of the most um, transformational experiences I've had in my life. It really showed me a path that I had never considered before. So grateful for it. Well, when you're thinking that way too, I don't think with that, when you're in that state, your survival instinct really allows you to think necessarily suicidal thoughts. What you might be considering in your subconscious mind is an end to the way you're living your life right now. Mm -hmm. That's got to die. There's some old habits. There's some old, Mm -hmm. that's what the, that's what these drugs teach you is the, the old things that you need to let go of so that you can move on and be fruitful and do your thing the right way and be in the right headspace instead of, it's not like, uh, I'm suicidal. I want to die. In fact, a lot of the right. the experiences psych- in, on psychedelics have that in them, that, that mm-hmm. feeling that it's pointless. But if you just extend that and, and when you, that's the cool thing about being high is the minute you, you start to feel like you're going off the rails, mm-hmm. you just simply say to yourself, I'm fucking high. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> there's like yes. this, there's this stigma attached to it, especially with younger people where mm-hmm. they, they want to be, they want to go around and say that they took, you know, a mega dose of such and such, and they got really high. But at the mm-hmm. same time, they want to, especially during the time that they're high, they want to appear as though they're totally fine. Mm-hmm. You know, and there's a stigma attached. Like one time I was sitting there, I was blowing bubbles <laughs> mm-hmm. and I, I had caught a bubble on the, you know, little, little thing that you blow it, the bubbles through. And it was just sitting there on top of it. And I was, there was a window behind me with a tree and then the tree was, swaying in the breeze a little. And I saw the reflection of the leaves from the tree on the bubble and they were kind of moving around and then the bubble started to dissipate. So there was little dots on it. And it looked like because of the leaves and the dots, it was a bunch of flowers that were all dancing around. And I, I I must've looked like such the fool, like sitting on the floor with a bubble, just staring at a bubble. (laughs) I must've looked high as a kite, but my friends actually were like, wow, she's really fucking high. Yeah. <laughs> like maybe we yeah. should, maybe we should put her in the back room. And then I'm thinking like, they actually had me go to the back room, like to what, take a nap. I'm like, right. I'm high as a freaking, I, I went back there for like five minutes and I was like watching the tapestry, which is all black with a, with a decoration on it going mm-hmm. in the breeze and it's all rainbow colored. And I'm like, this is so fucking cool. I mean, I'm going to go outside. 
And they were all worried. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, well, then if you're worried, come with me. And we went out and had the best snowball fight ever. But <laughs> I mean, it's like, don't, you know, it's not, mm-hmm. it's not a bad thing to allow yourself to be high. There's yeah. kids these days, they want to sit quietly on the couch and be high as a fucking kite and pretend mm-hmm. like, look at how well I'm handling this. Look at how well I'm handling right. it. Yeah, but you're not experiencing it though. You know? Yeah, exactly. You've got to get up and go out and experience it. You can't just sit there and go, look at how well I'm maintaining, even though I've just taken a bunch of micro dots or whatever. Mm -hmm. I felt like one of the things that I had to transition out of was because there is such a a stigma around any kind of drug substance in general, then you, and and I grew up in a a Christian family to boot. So it's even more rigid. uh, And so it took me a little while to be like, okay, I'm going, going to uh, eat mushrooms and have this experience because I'm convinced that it's actually going to help me. But I then had to put it inside of a box where I could only use it like plant medicine. And I actually, I think there's more to it than just that. I do think that there is not just room for recreation inside of it, but that if you aren't uh, using it occasionally for a recreational purpose, you're kind of missing the point um, because yeah. it does bring a sense of levity that you can't really get any other way. I, I remember one time my friend and I, I hadn't seen him in a really long time. He was here for work and we each took just a small little cap and had a couple of beers actually. And I was laughing hysterically. Everything was so funny. And uh, it was, it was a really fun time. This is the first time. And that I had really allowed it to be recreational and it, it shifted kind of the way that I had my relationship with them. Hmm. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. We used to sometimes take the, uh, we had a parachute that a friend of mine had a parachute and we'd go camping like 11 of us. And um, we would string the parachute up to be sort of a great big tent. Cause you know, there's a hole in the middle of it. So if you build a fire, the smoke goes up and out and it's, mm-hmm. it's like a circus tent when you string it up, a parachute can be like a circus tent. Mm-hmm. And we would go, we lived in Minnesota. So we would go up somewhere around the border. And cause a lot of, a lot of uh, American people and a lot of Canadian people like to dump their trash, like all along the border. Mm-hmm. So we'd go clean up and then we'd camp somewhere and we were camping somewhere once in a park ranger found us when we were all, it was after we had spent the day cleaning and we were all really high on mushrooms and he came along. And of course our first instinct was, Oh great. We're in trouble. Yeah. But he, he, and we told him, you know, we spent the day picking up trash and we even showed him the inside. We, we, we had a Winnebago that was filled to the gills with trash that we had to clean mm-hmm. up. Yeah. And um, once he saw that, he was like, I don't even know you guys are here. Have a great night. Bye. <laughs> and he just took off and we got to clean the forest and, trip around in the woods and that was very recreational we had you know we had such a good time it was no one was trying to find some secret message we were just having a Mm -hmm. lot of fun and it was great and that's got to be done sometimes or like you said you lose the point you miss the plot yeah yeah so I'm curious too, because uh, d- despite this feeling exactly like a conversation just with somebody that you've been interacting with, it's a podcast. Um, so I'm curious about your experience with uh, entheogens and creativity. Um, how how has it influenced the way that you go about making art uh, and different things of that nature? I think with writing, mostly is what I do is write. I can barely draw stick people, but. I think that uh, it got me into places in my mind and I started a notebook that just, it's called places and it Mm -hmm. has places that come into my head when I'm 
when I'm out and about in my astral, if you want to say it that way, I don't know. Yeah. But if you, you know, when I'm out and about, I come to very interesting places. Sometimes I've been there before and it's just different, but people are different or there's a upstairs that wasn't there in real life. And there's people that live up there or what have you. And I write those places down in my places notebook. And I have a people notebook, which is just weird, interesting people that I run into in real life or in other places. Hmm. And so that's my, I have a people and a places, two different notebooks for two different things. And when I need characters, when I need a place for a scene to happen, I have these to draw on. Hmm. And more often than not, because they're coming from a funny little psychedelic place, they have people that are regular people, but way more interesting. (laughs) (laughs) You know, you can't make all your characters be really, really interesting. Some of them have to be boring, but when I need someone really interesting, I can go to that people notebook. Mm. And I never would have thought of that if I hadn't been high when I started doing it. Of course, when I wrote it down, when I was actually high and looked back and read it the next day, it didn't make a ton of sense, but (laughs) yeah, I was like drawing graphs and it it was weird. I was really high, (laughs) but I've kept that habit for like, probably the last 15, 20 years now. And it's useful. Hmm. Yeah. I think I've, uh, I've only ever tried to actually use it during a creative time one time. Uh, and I, I thought, I think I thought it was microdosing, which is a totally different conversation. I'm not entirely confident that I think microdosing works or has any value, but I thought it was, and I took too much and I'm in the middle of, of a project. And all of a sudden I'm overwhelmed by sadness, like this extreme sad emotion. And I had to step away and it's like, I can't focus on my writing. I can't focus on anything. I can't communicate with a human being. I'm overwhelmed by sadness. Right back to that place I was talking about earlier, where all of life is pointless. That actually comes up in almost every experience I have at some point. Um, and I, I did have to step back from that moment and remind myself, just like you said, I am high right now. What mm-hmm. I'm thinking is, it, yes, this will pass. Exactly. I just have to sit down for a moment and be with these feelings and mm-hmm. they will move on when they're ready to. And yeah, I will, I will sober up. And um, I think there's sometimes some really getting out of whatever there. situation situation you're in, if you're in your house, mm-hmm. for example, and you're in your basement doing your project and you have yeah. that moment, go outside. Yes. Like that's the best thing you can, if, if, if you're not surrounded, like in a big city by a bunch that's what of people, I was about to say. Yeah. <laughs> the best thing that you can do is just even, even in that case, if you're not too high to deal with it, you can go outside and go for a walk. Sometimes all you need is a mm-hmm. pair of sunglasses because in your mind, you can, that will block you from the rest of the world. You can pretend like it's an invisibility cloak and you're high enough to believe your ass. So just go outside <laughs> yeah. and walk around with your sunglasses on and, and take a stroll and you'll see those people and you'll write them down and you'll have them in your book someday, you know, like things like it's a way of taking the chicken shit and turning it into chicken salad, you know, mm-hmm. like those moments that you have like the suicidal ideation. It's like, well, it's not, obviously I don't want to kill myself. I'm awesome, but, <laughs> yeah. but I definitely have some things about myself that I could change. There's this old yeah. me mm-hmm. that I've been shaving off pieces of for years to, yeah you know, make myself a better person. And that's another thing that I think um, entheogens do is that they, they make you want to be a better person and they make Mm -hmm. you see ways in which you aren't. And I, and I don't say make you like, that's, these aren't words. Like, I don't like it when people say you made me feel guilty. My big thing is, you know what, you're responsible for your feelings. Don't give me that power over you. Don't Mm -hmm. give me your power. 
you are responsible for your feelings. I can't make you feel guilty. If you feel guilty, you must feel that way for a reason. Mm. So I'm never about like, this made me do this, or this made me do that. I mean, obviously you have feelings that come to you unbidden, Mm -hmm. but how you react to them is still your choice, even when you're high. And you can, you can logically think that through once, once it's in your head, you know, you can talk yourself out of any destructive path that you might find yourself on when you're, Mm -hmm. when you're high on drugs, provided you're taking the right drugs and not something like methamphetamine or things that make you stupid and eat your brain and kill you. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there's, I'm, I'm trying to think of the, the Carl Hart. That's who it is. So Dr. Carl Hart is uh, a fan of heroin. He'll talk about, and it's so, so funny because he's a professor. So he, and, and pretty well known and he'll talk about using heroin, um, somewhat recreationally. And he's like, yeah, you know, addiction a lot of times is about the shame that we feel about things. And the fact that like, oh, this is a good thing. I need to do it every day. He's like, no, it's a a good experience. You recognize that it's powerful and potent and you put it in a box over here. And like, I think today, you know, my, uh, he'll say it this way, like my wife and I'll use some heroin and we'll have a good time together. And, and uh, on we go. And you're like, wow, that is a really different way of seeing the world. But I think that there's a lot of truth in it as well as uh, this experience that we have, because you're talking about putting on the glasses and all of that kind of stuff. And I'm thinking, boy, also, sorry, I'm trying to sound uh, coherent right now. You, <laughs> you, you mentioned, um, I realized I wasn't sounding coherent. So then I went back and checked myself and now I've lost the point of everything, which is horrible. Uh, I, I guess you talked about, there's a reason you're feeling that way. If you're feeling guilty, there's a reason you're feeling that way. And I mm-hmm. agree with you that not every time somebody says something, do they make you feel or never do they make you feel. But I do think that there's a lot of history and power behind things. I mean, it's hard for me to get through a day without at least considering the worldview and the filter that my parents put me in when I was raised. And so I agree that they don't make me feel that way, but it's pretty tough to be warm in an ice bath. Does that make sense at all? That makes sense. It makes sense. And you know, you're, you're talking to an orphan. So I was orphaned at the age of nine and I had six different sets of of parental units is what I call them. And all of them had a very different perspective. There was, there were uh, a couple of fundamental and I mean, putting the mental into (laughs) Christian types. Like they had me, they'd like bring me into their bedroom and they had a little Jesus altar in there and they would like make me kneel in front of it and like stay there for hours and pray. And they would tell me that I needed to be saved and all this. But of course that just, you know, I was getting smacked in the face for saying things like, what about people in Tibet? Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, they're very spiritual. They meditate all day long. Everything they do, they see as sacred. How can Mm -hmm. they not be going to heaven just because of geography? But they couldn't answer these questions. So instead they'd like, you know, hold Mm -hmm. my mouth open and pump a bunch of soft soap into it and like Mm -hmm. make me swallow it because I was obviously the devil. (laughs) Right. But, you know, yeah, uh, it's weird to think about. That's the thing when I, when I do use entheogens is I don't think about spirituality. I don't think about Mm -hmm. any of that. I just enjoy the experience. And usually that stuff just comes to me Mm -hmm. without having, the more you look for it, the less you're going to find it. I think that that's true. I also think uh, the more that you think you know what you're looking for, the less you're going to experience it. I think that there's a an open-handedness to, to life. And I also am convinced that there is truth and that it's better to have opinions about life and beliefs about life than it is to be fully open to everything. But 
Yeah. Yeah. The more, the more that, so it, it, a really good example of this actually is that you use a really specific kind of profile picture on Twitter. Um, it's always a young girl. It's always some kind of like cartoon. She almost is like cherubic in, in the look of mm-hmm. any avatar you use. And so I started to build a really specific picture in my mind of the kind of person you were. Um, and talking to you in person, had I held on to that and continued to try to push at that and make you be the person that I thought you were, we would certainly not be having the conversation we're having right now. Um, and so <laughs> I think that's fun. I think it's good to have a reference. And I also think it's good to be open to experiencing something in a different way than you thought you were going to. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, the name Fanny Adams, I use Fanny Adams ghost on mm-hmm. there. Do you know who Fanny Adams is? You know, I, 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 it rings a bell, but no, I'm just going to straight up say no. <laughs> Fanny Adams is a child that was brutally murdered oh, no. in the 1800s. Okay. She was taken off, you know, from, she had a couple little friends with her that didn't go with, she went with to this it, back then it was like, Oh, I'll, I'll make sure you get home safely. I'll walk with mm-hmm. you. And then, I mean, the guy brutally murdered and did horrible things oh, to geez. this girl and cut her up into bits. And the army, the Navy, whatever, uh, the, the um, English, because it was in England, um, they would get their canned meat, you know, dropped from airplanes. Mm-hmm. And they would refer to that canned meat as Fanny Adams. Oh, my gosh. And um, it be kind of it kind of came, became synonymous with uh, a thing of little value, something that's worthless. Fanny Adams was so worthless, she just got thrown into a can, oh, you know, wow. that kind of thing. And when I was using that profile name, I was homeless. And I was feeling very much that way. I know my worth. Uh-huh. I know my self-worth. And that's why I don't go around giving out discounts. But I, I know my my worth and they it was like I was always being told like people would literally say because I was homeless that I should go and kill myself that I'm useless that I'm worthless and that's when I started using Fanny Adams ghost oh wow because I was like feeling that way and I thought if anybody knows what this name means they're going to understand like the the deeper meaning of what I'm feeling right now and maybe some can relate to that but actually I found that a lot of people have never heard of Fanny Adams before and don't know who she is so that's good though I mean in a sense, it further reinforces, uh, I almost want to cut that whole story from the podcast because not knowing who she is reinforces how insignificant she is. And it keeps it, uh, the correct the correct use of the word precious in this case, it keeps it precious, valuable um, mm-hmm. for, for people not to understand. I almost would hate for it to become like uh, well-known now. Yeah. Um, at yeah. the same time, I'm not, I'm not going to cut it just uh, <laughs> FYI. It's a, it's a good story. So it has to stay, but um, wow, that's, that's really impactful. And so talk to me a little bit, if you don't mind about uh, the being homeless, I was homeless by choice. I never was homeless mm-hmm. because I, I uh, didn't have other options, but I was homeless for a period of two years working um, in a variety of different places across the state of Utah. Um, I lived out of my car and I actually really enjoyed it, but also I had, like I said, the ability to get access to gyms and showers and all that kind of stuff. It sounds to me like that's not the case for you. And I, I have to imagine it wasn't a pleasant experience. It wasn't. No, not this last five years. Cause I was homeless with my daughter. Wow. Who's not a little girl. She's 20. Okay. She's 20, 20, in her twenties. Mm-hmm. Um, but we've been homeless for five years. So I was okay. trying to do math in my head. Okay. That doesn't work out for okay. me, but um, no, I did, I did intentionally homeless too, for like okay. the nineties. Oh, yeah. um, I was leather tramping around. I did the P the yeah. Pacific 
Crest Trail, the Appalachian Trail. Amazing. A lot of the trails that now make up the American Discovery Trail. I did mm. John Muir and I hitchhiked all over the country, back and forth, back and forth. I did some Grateful Dead tour because you can make money that way. And that was all by choice. Yeah. This last five years wasn't by choice. Mm. And it was it was like a, these three major things happened all at once. My rent went up by $250. Mm-hmm. I got let go from my job, apparently... <laughs> I worked at a bank Mm -hmm. and this woman who it was inside of a Safeway and one of our customers had seen me come in one day and it was raining and my feet were wet. So she bought me some boots. She didn't have to. I didn't ask her to. She bought me some boots. She brought them up to my teller window. We aren't allowed to take gifts from people, but we had a really long line. I wanted to appear grateful, make your customer happy. That's a big deal. So I put them under my under my little booth and I was like, thank you. You know, and I planned on bringing them back. I brought him back immediately when I could, when the line died down to my manager and told her everything Mm -hmm. and they fired me for taking a gift. So (laughs) I ended up without a job. My rent had gone up by, you know, over $200. It was just an insane time. And we, you know, I got the unemployment and then they cut me off after three months because they didn't have fun. They ran out of funds or something. So we ended up homeless and it was winter was approaching. So my daughter and I, have you ever heard of WOOF? No, I have not. W-W-O-O-F, uh-uh. Worldwide Organization of Organic Farmers. Okay. They, um, they have a website and you can go find a farm in a place that you want to work. Some people go overseas, like to Italy and work in a, in a vineyard. Wow. But, um, it's been around since the 70s. In the 70s, you would handwrite a letter to a farm, say you wanted to work there, and they would either say, come on down or not. Wow. But now they use the internet and you go and work at these farms for room and board. Wow. And since we needed... We needed room and board at the time. Mm-hmm. We went and worked at a goat farm wow. for three months. And then we went to a homeless village, which was like tiny houses mm-hmm. without electricity, without plumbing, without any of that. But, you know, a roof over your head. It mm-hmm. was like, I think it was eight by eight by ten. Wow. And then we did that for two years. And then St. Vinny's got us this tiny little trailer, like no, no longer than my Honda Accord. Mm-hmm. <laughs> tiny trailer for the two of us to live in and we we were there for three years oh my goodness with no bathroom no plumbing no food storage none of that stuff and we still were like you know thank god we have a porta potty yeah you know we, we were we were in a place where we were being really grateful that we had a porta potty yeah when you get to a place where you're waking up and your gratitude in the morning is because all of your fingers work and all of your toes work because that's really all that you have to be grateful for that day mm-hmm. I'm breathing air, (laughs) you know, you learn to be grateful for everything. It it teaches you a lot about yourself and your worldview and about how you, how other people treat you. Cause it's, it's interesting because as poor as we were, we can only afford like food that you could pour hot water over. So Mm -hmm. like we ate a lot of ramen. My daughter and I both put on weight from living in this unhealthy environment. Mm -hmm. So we got this part of, society like coming down on us, telling us to go kill ourselves, telling us that we were worthless Jeez. people. Um, like little, like the teenagers from, we were right across from a high school. They would come and throw stuff at our, at our place. They would try and break into our bathroom or knock it over, which we had a porta potty, like mm-hmm. I said, but it's just the way you get treated. And, you know, mm-hmm. the way I got treated because I was a little more plump than usual too, mm-hmm. by other, just by regular people, not by people who hate homeless people, but it's it's really remarkable the judgments that people make in their heads and they i know that some of the people that would give us grief if they saw us in a different situation never would have treated us that way 
but they had us in the context of being at that trailer and being, you know, in that parking lot. Mm -hmm. And it's amazing how extremely rude people are when they think that they're dealing with, you know, people that are considered worthless to society. And then, you know, they go about their lives probably acting like they're really good people. Right. And they're not. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But it was, that was horrible. It was a horrible five years. It was, but like I said, we learned, we were already pretty grateful people, but we learned to be even more grateful. We learned to cope because we, we don't have therapists. We don't have pills. We don't do that. That's not my, that's not our thing. You know, we're not, I don't hold it against anybody for doing what they need to do, but I look at mental health a way different than people these days do. I mean, psychology was my major and I changed it because I saw where it was going Mm -hmm. and I was right. And it, is worse than I ever thought it was going to be. And I'm glad that I'm not in that field because I wouldn't be able to handle people who don't understand that there's a difference between, you know, trauma because someone called you a mean name on the internet and trauma because someone pounded your face into a wall until you were unconscious. I don't buy it as much if you're telling me someone called me a mean name online and now I have PTSD. No, I'm sorry, honey, but you don't, (laughs) you know, like, but yeah, there's, it's just, people don't understand, like, I don't know, there's, there's a really entitled vibe in America, no matter where people come from, even the meth heads are entitled to, you know, walk down the street and right in the middle of it and mm-hmm. stand in front of your car and scream. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because they think your car is a dragon or whatever. Right. And you're supposed to be so sweet and nice to them. You honk your horn and people will come down on you. It's like, oh boy, what do I do? Every situation now is like, I'm walking on eggshells. What do I do? I don't want to piss anybody Mm -hmm. off. Yeah, I think I, I think I understand where you're coming from in that regard. I just, uh, earlier today, I had another podcast with, with someone and, uh, the person referred to a, a people group. I'm trying to keep it vague because obviously I have to, I don't, I don't, anyways, um, referred to a people group by a word that I know is no longer acceptable. And there was everything in me that wanted to, you know, quote unquote virtue signal by not necessarily correcting her, but by using the correct term to show that I was not culpable in that behavior. I think that's a really interesting, uh, in group, out group kind of a thing. And, um, I have not been homeless like you were, nor have I been orphaned, uh, but I was extremely outgroup. The worst four years of my life were high school. I hated high school and everyone either treated me like I was invisible or um, tried to make my life hell. It was a horrible time in my life. And so I'm so conscious of in-group, out-group. Uh, it's funny. I'm thinking back on earlier in the conversation when I was mentioning um, how how vulnerable I am to being unoffensive to everybody. And I think that has to do with not wanting to be on the out group again. Mm-hmm. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. It's hard. And it's, especially nowadays, I mean, there's so much overcorrection going on. Mm-hmm. People are becoming the thing that they hate. I just wrote a piece about that. People becoming the very thing that they're yes. complaining against, you know, like it's, they don't see that they're doing it. They don't see the hypocrisy, mm-hmm. but I always think of it like, you know, you're, you got your left extreme left side and your extreme right side. Yes. But the most naturally occurring shape in nature is a circle. Mm -hmm. So you take your two ends and you bring them together and you've got people who are so radical that they are actually in agreement Mm -hmm. with the opposite side. Mm -hmm. You know, those two ends of the circle are meeting and there's a very blurry place there where they actually agree with each other, but they don't bother to dig any deeper and see that they are actually 
they have more in common than they think. This culture right now is so about disconnection yeah. instead of connection. And it's really sad to watch it happen because we, you know, people used to be way more connected. When yeah. I was traveling, it was so much easier when I was homeless, what have you. I mean, it was mm -hmm. a completely different beast than it is now. Now, if you're, I mean, unless you're an Instagram traveler and you've got like all your followers paying your way, mm -hmm. like I never had anything, anybody paying my way. Right. Like I, I never, as an orphan, I didn't have parents I could call if I, I, I was doing it completely without a safety net. Yeah. And that's the only way you can really learn when you're traveling in that way. If you really, really, if you really want to expose yourself and really learn, mm -hmm. like, you know, you've got to have no safety net whatsoever that you can just gently land in. Yes. You know, I, um, this, this is a funny, this is a funny way to tie a, a lot of this story together is I did a hitchhiking trip. My friend Charlie and his wife, Melissa had moved out to Washington DC, uh, and they were having their first baby. And, uh, I decided I wanted to hitchhike out to visit them. I didn't have the money to, to travel out there any other way. And I was in my still kind of religious days. And so I thought I'm not going to bring anything other than an ID, uh, a pocket knife, and um, I think I had a bag with a couple changes of clothes. So it's like clothes, um, my ID in case I did get pulled over by the cops or like the cops needed to see anything. I wanted to have identification. And then my pocket knife, uh, I didn't bring any money or anything. And I didn't tell anybody I was doing it that way. Uh, it was amazing. In just in context mm -hmm. of, of that experience, it took me five days to get from Omaha, Nebraska to Washington, D.C. And every person who picked me up treated me with so much respect, dignity. My very, well, my second ride was uh, a mother and her daughter that were getting back from Amana, Iowa, where they had like canned jelly together. And they, they offered to bring me to their house. They made pork chops, tomatoes, mm -hmm. mozzarella. Uh, and then uh, she had a son who had like a photo lab in the basement. And when he got home, he showed me his photo lab and he had an extra bike and we rode bikes around Des Moines. It was, nice. yeah, I didn't, and I never... No one ever even asked me to spend money on anything. Like, they're like, do you need anything to eat? If they would go into a gas station, do you need anything to drink? And I just kind of the rules I set for myself is if they ask, I will accept because that's the most uncomfortable thing to accept charity. Um, mm -hmm. What an amazing experience. And then I think to culminate it and make me not sound like a good person at all is uh, there was a guy, a trucker who gave me a 20 and I took the 20 and I used the 20 to buy cigarettes when I got to DC. <laughs> so... <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> the money I had, I used for evil. <laughs> I don't mean, I don't mean evil in the religious context, but it's just sort of funny in the grand scheme. I know of what you mean. Yeah. I, I, I smoke from time to time too. It's, a, you know, it's the thing about that is I don't think of, I know for a fact that there are no chemical constituents in tobacco that calm you down right. or anything like that. But we do live in a culture where if you want to smoke, you've got to separate yourself from whatever oh, you're doing, whoever you're talking yeah. to go away from it all. Yep. And, and that's where you can go and smoke. So in a way mm -hmm. it's an excuse to just kind of take a break, yes. you know, from a social situation that might be making you uncomfortable or from a social situation where, you know, if you're at a bar and, you know, mm -hmm. some drunk tar just pulled <laughs> up and started, you know, spitting all over your food, you're going to want to walk away for a minute, yeah. you know, and that's always nice to be able to do. And, I don't, I always consider myself a more of a non-smoker than a smoker. Mm -hmm. Cause like, if I get a pack of cigarettes, it'll last me for a month, oh, yeah. you know, but yeah, I, it's not necessarily evil. It's a necessary evil yeah. for, for folks who, for folks who use it as stress relief, you know, it can't be any worse than some of the medications that they're 
doling out to people? Yeah. The serious question for me, it's one I, I think about all the time is I smoked cigarettes. Uh, I mean, I was a smoker, smoker up to two packs a day when I was working in, in Utah. Um, and then all the way up until my son, I think he turned to my oldest son when I decided, you know, I, I at least want him to have a choice of whether he's going to be a smoker. I'm never going to harass him about it. Like I've been harassed in my life for it, but I'm going to quit cigarettes. So that vaping was still fairly new, but I had a neighbor in the apartment complex we were living at and she told me where to go to get my mod all set up. And I vaped for the next six years. I think after that, uh, it was right around the mm-hmm. pandemic that I decided to, uh, like try quitting completely. So I had weaned myself off of all nicotine. It was really just the, the, activity of vaping that I still did. And, yeah. uh, so I, I quit, but simultaneously with quitting nicotine. So I was still vaping a little bit. I started gaining weight. I'm 80, 90 pounds heavier than I was when I was ever a smoker. And sometimes I wonder, <laughs> you know, did I, did I actually do anything healthy for myself here? <laughs> I know. Right. Yeah. I mean, sometimes when I go out to smoke, I'll end up going for like a walk for an hour. Yeah. You know, I just, because I'm already outside anyway, I might as well take a walk around the neighborhood. So I actually get more exercise looking mm-hmm. than non-smoking. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I'm not, I'm not like shoving food in my mouth all the time. I don't know what it is, but it, it definitely yeah. has a, an impact. What I, what I love about this conversation, I think there was probably a tweet somewhere along the way that I asked you if you wanted to tell a story on. And I was actually suspicious even before we jumped on the, the Zoom that I probably would allow the conversation not to center around telling a story. Cause I, you'd, you'd made a couple comments that made me think your story is as interesting as any uh, fiction that we'll tell in this case. Um, but yeah, I, I, here you are. You're not, you're not homeless anymore. If I'm understanding correctly. Uh, that's true. We got a place in the end of October. So awesome. we <laughs> hanging on to it by the skin of our teeth, but we're, we're there. <laughs> good, good. And is it, does it feel safe? Does it feel safer? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't usually feel unsafe, mm-hmm. you know? I mean, the, the only thing we were unsafe from is people who were hollering comments at us about how worthless we were and killing ourselves. Right. But like I said, we both, <laughs> my daughter so and I, casual are, about that. <laughs> we know our worth. Yeah. We're not, you know, it's, I feel sorry for those people that mm. they don't have a hobby and something better to do with their time. But yeah, um, yeah I don't, the, the homeless thing was, it was, we needed to experience it and we did. And now we're out of it. Mm. And that was the first time I had been homeless without it being my idea Mm. and it was it was a little it was a little crazy i'm glad we're out of that yeah is it something that you are planning on writing about is it do you see your experience as being because you you mentioned that you were originally going to get a degree in psychology do you see it as being uh something that you can help other people with or is it an experience that's that's really for you because i could see it going both ways from our conversation uh, th- th- there's a phrase that came up in my mind at one point that I heard my grandpa, my grandpa say a bunch was a contributing member of society. He used to talk about homeless people as non-contributing members of society. And in that way, they were just a drag, like all of our tax dollars are going to support this like other thing. Um, and, and so I'm, I'm curious, I could actually see you in a really redemptive way saying, you know, what? my life is my life. If people hear my story, cool, but I'm certainly not going to try to like preach at them about what I've learned from this experience. I could also see you wanting to help people because you were an orphan, because you were homeless, because you've had hard times and you've learned some really valuable lessons. If you look at my websites, you'll see exactly what you're, there's mm. one that I did called, um, 
uh, round peg square one village. The place where I was in transitional housing was called square one villages Mm. and they do, they try and do housing for people. And so round peg square one village is about my experience at the homeless village and what it, I, I looked at it. The only way to survive that place was to look at it. Like it was a, an anthropological study, you know, like a covert full immersion study of this culture of people that were living in tiny houses in this community, because otherwise I would, they would sit around and talk about different ways they could rape the system, uh-huh. um, wow. different things that they were trying to get money. You know, I'm not, I don't even have diabetes, but I'm getting $350 oh, a month for it. And it's like, just, it, they thought I would be yeah sympathetic in, in on yeah. that with them. They thought that I would be like totally there, like but I was disgusted by their behavior. I of was course. disgusted. These the the programs that the government puts in place for people that are experiencing hard times mm-hmm. are not there to be a crutch. They're there to be a catalyst. Right. They're there to get you out of that situation. Not, but at the same time, this the the programs are also set up to where they don't really give you enough to get you out of the situation, just to keep you in it. Mm. So it's set up to keep the poor, poor, mm-hmm. but it, I don't know. It's, it's, I, I would, there's so many different things <laughs> that I could help with if I had yeah. the resources, if I had the, the connections that I would need to help just with the homeless problem in general, there's a lot of ideas that I have after living in it. And yeah. not all, not all homeless people are created equally. Absolutely. Like it, not. it makes me aggravated when I hear people say the homeless. Right. Like they're not even people. Yeah, exactly. It's kind of like people. the housed. I mean, you, you do, you, you've got like the homeless and the housed, and you're like, all the housed are the same, and all of the homeless are the same. You know, we love, we love they're our, not. our, uh, yeah. Like I've never touched methamphetamine, but just because I was homeless at that time, everybody assumed that I was doing mm-hmm. methamphetamine mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And I, I never was. They, they make all these assumptions about you, and it's, yeah. It's they're so unfair. It's mm-hmm. just so unfair. And as far as the coping, I have a website also called Big Picture Productions, which is about helping people cope without. Basically, it it says right on this website that it's for uh, helping people recover from traditional therapy. Yeah. <laughs> because traditional therapy again is there to keep you sick. It's not. They don't want you to get better. You're you're a bankroll to them. You're coming into your therapy. $300 a session twice a week, plus all the pills that you're on feeding big pharma. And I've been through hell and back a number of times and I've done it all without any medication, without any therapy, mm-hmm. because I didn't have a choice. I had to do it that right. way. So I know it's possible. And I know that people are stronger than they give themselves credit for. Yes. And that's what big picture productions is all about. I love it. Um, you mentioned two websites just now. Uh, I will link to your Twitter. Are there any other places that you want folks to find you to learn more about your story? Um, uh, yeah. How would you want to interact with people generally? I have a campsite at my Twitter account. Um, it's like Linktree, but it's called campsite. So it's like campsite dot two backslash uh, mystical maven. Perfect. All right. And that one has all of my links there. Um, there's also a website that I've done that has, I used to teach classes in, in alternative religion and paganism. There was a, it was kind of focused in mm-hmm. paganism because it was the early nineties, yeah. but um, a lot of my ideas and concepts and whatnot about spiritual things are there. And then I've got the big picture productions, which is about coping mm-hmm. and there's music there too. I, I like to take songs and weird album is what I call it when I make mm. 
make up different words okay. to songs that already exist. Very cool. <laughs> and sometimes they're kind of therapeutic. There's a couple songs that I wrote myself there. And awesome. It just as mu- music as therapy kind of a thing. Mm. And then there's the... There's a lot there. There's also the Hannah Maxwell site just for my writing mm-hmm. and there's writing prompts there and stuff like that. I've got several websites. I'm trying to get it out there as much as I can because I've I've been invisible online ever since I've been online. So Yeah. Fantastic. <laughs> All righty. Well, I will link to everything. Thank you for rescheduling with me and it's been great getting to know you a little bit. Been great getting to know you too. I'm glad. Yeah. Thanks. Thank you for listening to TRBM. The theme music was provided by the ever-talented Christopher Talon. And hey, if you liked what you heard, share this show with other readers because what's the point of telling stories if nobody's listening? 